Hey everybody, I'm Drew Martin, and this is the Mobility Minute Podcast. Mobility is sometimes hard to define, and this show is a platform for forward-thinking individuals who understand the importance of mobility in relation to recovery. Today, we speak with Kaylee Dayton, a nurse practitioner from Utah whose experience as a traveling nurse and in her hospital's awake and walking ICU has led her to start a podcast of her own called Walking Home from the ICU. Her goal is to discover the true impacts of sedation in the ICU and how many times patients are unnecessarily administered drugs that lead to more harm than good. On her show, she interviews survivors dealing with post-ICU PTSD and clinicians who understand that even the most critically ill patient needs mobility. So with that, let's get to our conversation with Kaylee. I'm Kaylee Dayton. I'm an ICU nurse practitioner, and I started my career as a nurse in an awake and walking ICU. So it was medical surgical ICU in Utah where we did not sedate people automatically once they were intubated. So everyone was essentially awake and almost always walking on the ventilator. That was my introduction to critical care, and I didn't know anything else until I became a travel nurse. And suddenly I was immersed into this culture and this world of automatic deep sedation and immobility. And I didn't totally understand why that was, why they were practicing that way, let alone what that would mean for patients. And I would ask providers and nurses, hey, can I get my patient up? Can I just wake them up? Because I was used to talking to my patients, moving them, having them be human in the bed um, and out of the bed. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And I'd say, well, why are they sedated? And they'd say, because they're intubated. And I'd say, okay, but why are they sedated? Like that wasn't an adequate answer for me. And I wasn't able to explain where I was coming from because they thought I was crazy for expecting them to be awake. And so I spent years going coast to coast around the United States and seeing just this rot and these problems. And I just couldn't put it all together until I went back to Utah to become a nurse practitioner. I was in graduate school, and we still didn't talk about it. Even in grad school, I specialize in adult gerontology, acute care. So almost all of my classmates did ICU, critical care, and the focus was on acute care in the hospital, how to get people better and keep them alive. Mobility was never brought up. And I would just hear weird things. Like I would be listening to a case study and they're talking about someone with pneumonia being intubated, put on propofol, and then put on um, a vasopressor or norepinephrine because the propofol drove their pressures down. And I would raise my hand or even stand up and say, but why are they on propofol? I don't understand. Why are we automatically knocking people out? I still didn't know what this meant until I was on an airplane and I sat next to a survivor. When he asked what I did for a living, I told him and the color just dropped from his face. And he started telling me about his horrific experience in the ICU. Um, He clearly had ICU delirium. He had vivid, vivid hallucinations that to him were real, like trees were falling on him. He was handcuffed, arms pinned down to the ground, couldn't run away. Anyways, it sent him in a psychotic spiral after the ICU, and he was extremely traumatized. And this was years after his admission that he was telling me about this. And that's when I really started looking into post-ICU PTSD. Um, why we do early, early mobility, what the benefits are. And the more I read into the research, the more I realized the big picture 
of critical care. And every time I'd find something or read something new, I would, I kept thinking about all these other ICUs that I had worked in. And I kept thinking, they don't know this. They don't know this. They would not automatically sedate patients and leave them in bed. Like I say, to rot if they knew what the research shows. And I just kept feeling like we needed to tell people needed to tell people. And one day just came to me, start a podcast. And I didn't know what that meant. And I just started interviewing survivors. I went to Facebook groups, found survivors. There are tons of survivors that want to talk about their experiences. And um, that's when it really became real to me. And they talked about their post-ICU PTSD, what it was like to be immobile, what it was like to not even be able to hold their own heads up, to be traked. I mean, all the things, it all just became real. And then I interviewed survivors of the awake and walking ICU. And they talked about what it was like to be awake on a ventilator and walking and to walk straight home and resume work after a month and their quality of life at that point. And it's just evolved into this kind of a a learning tool for healthcare providers to be able to change the culture of the intensive care units. Sure. That's, that's awesome experience and uh, kind of seeing firsthand the benefits of a system like you were in previously, and then going into a new one where uh, that wasn't the case. Are awakened uh, walking ICUs, is that is that a common thing or is this a kind of a special scenario that you were in in Utah? So I think there are varying degrees of compliance with this approach. So the ADF bundle is a big uh, movement that's coming, which is wonderful. It really improves the whole situation and it, and it has us giving people vacations from the sedation, seeing if they can tolerate it. It's still not really what they wake in walking practice. ICU practices because they never start sedation. So you don't have to give them a break and see if they can breathe on their own. You're always assessing that. Um, but nonetheless, the critical community is becoming a little bit more aware of the reality of sedation and mobility. And I think they're trying to develop protocols to lighten things up. Um, but I think the wake and walk and ICU there in Salt Lake City is probably the only ICU in the whole world that has standardized keeping patients awake and walking on, on the ventilator. Um, uh, everywhere else, they're having little moments of success or they're trying or... Um, I think the problem is that they we're still automatically starting people on sedation that makes them delirious. And so when you start taking off the sedation, they come out agitated and wild and we end up just putting the sedation back on. So I think the wake and walk in ICU is probably one of the only ICUs that hardly ever starts sedation on anyone. That sedation is the special exception um, in rare cases. So it's probably the only ICU that walks people 200 feet or to a thousand feet or takes them outside on a ventilator during critical illness um, in the whole world. Wow. Yeah, that's that's um, crazy to think about. And um, just the general ICU patient, um, kind of this understanding that they are supposed to be sedated is kind of the the, the viewpoint that a lot of people take. But um, from your experience, you see the power uh, of getting them off that sedation and then empowering them to be mobile. So what do you think... Uh, it means to make mobility a priority in the ICU? Because obviously the milestones for an ICU patient in terms of mobility are a lot different than um, the rest of the floors. We see mobility as a treatment. It's essential for survival. We know that mobility increases their chances of surviving. So when they're critically ill, why would we not pull out all the stops to make sure that they survive, even just during that critical phase, but also their survival rates improve in the long term, because you can get someone through the critical illness, you can fix the other organs, the kidneys, the liver, whatever, and break the rest of the body. 
And then they end up dying of those complications later. So I think making it a priority is having that big perspective of this is a mandatory treatment for survival. So if someone comes in with septic shock, you're not going to say, I don't really feel like giving an antibiotic today. It's probably not a good day for that. We'll just skip it today. Um, we see mobility as vital as an antibiotic during septic shock. Um, and it's dose dependent as well. So their tolerance is going to change. Um, but if someone walks into the ICU, they should be able to walk out of the ICU. We've even had people roll into the ICU who have not walked for a long time and end up walking out after being on the ventilator for weeks. They regain their ability to walk on the ventilator. And that's how we avoid tracheostomies. And so I think it's a priority in the wake and walk in ICU because of a knowledge base. It's a culture, but it's also a deep understanding of how to help people survive and thrive after critical illness. Um, and so it's just not even an option. So if they can't stand, they're at least going to dangle. And if it takes us kind of holding them up, if they can only hold their own heads up, head up, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to work from there. But it's definitely a skill set and a different perspective that this team has. Sure. And uh, so for some of those mobility victories um, and accomplishments for the patient, how, how are you guys currently documenting um, those? And what does it what does it mean? to the patient when they accomplish uh, certain things? Uh, and how do you communicate that amongst the staff? I think as far as documentation, I think physical therapy documents each time. So they dangled at the bedside for 15 minutes and the next day they stood and they took three steps. And then, um, you know, a lot of people never lose the ability to walk because they'll be intubated and then we walk them that same day. So it's not like we're starting having to start trying to mobilize them after a week of being in bed. So our mobility communication is usually, Hey, they walked 200 feet today, or they walked 50 feet and had to take two breaks. So physical therapy is recording that in their notes. The nurse is present during that activity. Usually they communicate it to the next shift. Um, we talk about it in rounds. Um, as a nurse practitioner, I document it in my notes, um, especially if someone's having problems with myopathy or um, we're worried about their pulmonary function declining. It's noteworthy and it gives a lot of insight to say their stamina has decreased today or it's increased. It gives us a bigger picture of the, how the patient is progressing or digressing in their course. And so um, it's not really standardized as far as doctor or nurse practitioner notes, um, but it is definitely available and present in the physical therapies notes, as well as our interpersonal communications. Sure. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And yeah, just to give some background on our device, we kind of hope to provide almost a scoreboard so that everyone that interacts with that patient on the, the at the bedside has an understanding of what the patient's capable of doing and what they've done in the past so that they can you know continue that progression and continue to get better. And sometimes it helps for, for the patient to know how many feet they've walked so that they can, they can stick, they can stick it to themselves. Right. Or sometimes they'll say, I can't do that. And we can say, Hey, you walked 50 feet yesterday. Let's at least do that today. Right. And to know those metrics is, is very powerful. Um, just cause it, it keeps everyone honest. Right. Right. So. And our unit, they're a full lap around our unit is 200 feet. And so I think that's important to know how many feet exactly people are walking. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I guess along those lines um, and motivation, do you see family member engagement as a, a key 
resource for ICU patients in terms of, um, you know, preventing deterioration and, and helping them progress? Absolutely. The family is um, one of the most important team members on the ICU team. And they are vital in preventing and treating delirium. So when you have someone that's going to be on the ventilator for a long time, they need to have something that's familiar to them. Um, I feel like we avoid a lot of delirium by not even starting sedation. You're taking a delirious agent out of the picture. So they're more likely to keep their wits about them, but a family member there helps them stay calm, avoid anxiety, stay informed. They're essential in preventing delirium and that totally changes outcomes when patients don't get delirious. And so with COVID right now, that's been a really frustrating factor in all ICUs is that we're deeply sedating people and we're taking away anything that might be familiar or a grounding point for them. Um, mobility is also an important treatment for delirium. And so sometimes you'll have patients that are delirious. They don't know where they're at. They think they're in the store. They think probably the worst things. And then you have a family member saying, hey, you can do it stand up and they're helping, whether it's coaching them as they stand, um, pushing the wheelchair behind them. That's a job that we always can give a family member just to push a wheelchair, just to make sure if the patient needs a break, the family's members right there, coaching them, telling them good job, or they're in front of them, like walking backwards as the patient's walking to them, um, having that moral support by someone that knows them, that wants them to succeed, um, I think really changes their, their compliance and their outcomes. Totally. And uh, obviously hearing that um, directly from someone that they trust, uh, such as a family member, also helps. Another thing I noticed, um, I was listening to one of your episodes, um, I was talking about mobility as the job of everyone um, and how mobility and bed rest are two totally different terms. And I thought that was a really interesting point because I had never heard that before, um, that someone that's immobile almost has you know, this sedated restriction on the ability to move, but someone who is in bed rest can move, they're just not moving. So could, could you talk a little bit about that and maybe some of the key takeaways that you've learned um, while talking with um, both patients and clinicians on that that topic? Yeah, that was the interview with Christine Permay. She's a IC rehabilitationist. Um, and she, yeah, that was a great insight. So she defined the difference between bed rest and immobility and immobility is like when you break your arm and you get your arm in a cast, it's immobilized. Your arm is not going to move. Those muscles are not going to be utilized at all. And so when we deeply sedate someone, they're not going to move those muscles at all. They have no connection. Their brain's not going to talk to those limbs. Um, those muscles are going to deteriorate even faster. Um, whereas bed rest is when you can still move your limbs. You can raise your arm. You can scratch your nose. You can use the TV remote. You can bend your legs. You can do those things. Um, even if you're not weight bearing, you can still move your extremities and talk to your limbs, um, but you're not getting up. And so bed rest is bad, but immobility is worse. We should be very cautious about making anyone bed rest. It should be absolutely essential that we make someone bed rest and we should avidly avoid making people immobile through sedation. Sure. Yeah. Also, another thing I, I noticed in that episode, um, which I thought was really good, by the way, I, I, I noticed she was talking about early mobility alone isn't necessarily what's going to help the patient, but it's actually the frequency of how often they're mobile. So um, along those lines, 
Do you ever see, um, as someone in the ICU, patients who you feel like are on the up and up and have made a lot of progress in the ICU, um, and once they do move out of the ICU, you, you find that they end up back in the ICU? You know, we had a problem with this for a while. So um, the ICU has always been very aggressive with mobility, and so people are able to be extubated successfully. We don't really hardly ever have to do tracheostomies. And so um, we don't transfer people to LTACs hardly ever. So the course is normal that someone's on a ventilator for a while. They get extubated. Um, once they're on a nasal cannula, they're out to the floor. And yes, they've been walking, but walking three times a day is not totally the same as your normal life. We get up and down out of a chair more than three times a day. So people are much weaker than their baseline. And then you have people that are higher risk, you know, your elderly, your geriatrics that are far more important to mobilize. Um, so they might be like kind of on the, on the teetering on the edge of debilitating weakness, even if they've been mobilized on the ventilator. Right. And they still could have some brewing pneumonia and fluid overload and, and all these things that cause them to be on the ventilator. And they're still not over that completely. They're just well enough to be off the ventilator. So you've got people that are still on the fence that could need the ventilator. They didn't keep on improving. And so um, I think we forget how important mobility is for secretion clearance to be able to cough, to be upright, to get mucus out, to mobilize it within our lungs and then clear it out, as well as having the strength to hold your own head up and protect your airway. That's extremely important. And so we've worked really hard in the ICU to keep people strong enough to be off the ventilator. We have them up in the chair out during the day. We have them doing things. Um, and then we send them to the floor and they're extremely busy on the floor. And um, for a long time, mobility wasn't the same perspective, wasn't the same priority. And so people were just laying in bed all day. Um, and so they were going from aggressive mobility to hardly any mobility. And then they would tell nurses and physical therapy, no, thank you. I don't want to get up. And but then that was that, you know, who's, don't, we don't have time to fight them on everything. And so um, they were coming back to us because they couldn't clear their secretions because they couldn't um, maintain the respiratory drive. And so, or work of breathing. And so um, we had to do a lot of communication between the ICU and the floor saying, Hey, we're working here. We get these people to this point and these readmissions to the ICU really are preventable. How can we support you in uh, mobilizing people better? And so I, the mobility should be throughout the whole hospital. It's everyone's job. It should be everyone's focus at every point. I mean, you think back to labor and delivery, postpartum women used to be bed rest for weeks after um, delivering babies. And so they'd have, they developed pneumonia and blood clots. And now we look back at that and we're like, that's ridiculous. Why was that ever a thing? Someday we're going to look back at immobility and I see the same way. And so even the floor and especially the floor has to have the same perspective. If um, we're going to tune people up and send them out, we need to keep them progressing after. You hit on some great points and some points that I've been able to kind of pull out of some of these other people we've talked to, um, both at the bedside and just thought leaders uh, around the mobility space and how important it is. Um, so thank you for hitting on all that. You know, you've recorded 60 some episodes of this podcast. It's It's been over a year. Um, what have you really taken away from this experience and um, what will you kind of take into these next episodes, you know, next X number of episodes that you decide to record? Um, 
what, what are the big takeaways for you? I started this podcast knowing that it was the right thing to do. Part of it was just my own um, curiosity. I wanted to do my own research on this topic that I cared about. Um, but I had some insecurities. Like I'm just a little nurse practitioner in Utah and no one's going to care what I say or what's going on. Um, and yet I had this glimmer of hope that um, the good people in healthcare would care and would want to change. We've had a revolutions in our field so many times over and over again. That's how anything's evolved or progressed is because someone asked why, why not? What if someone challenged the current process and made it better? So I had this glimmer of hope that that's what people would take away from this podcast. And I've been astounded and just so inspired by how good people are. I'm constantly reached out to by all members of the ICU team, occupational, physical therapists, speech therapists, um, of course, nurses, respiratory therapists, and they, they love it because they genuinely want to do the right thing for patients. They want to see them get better. They want to provide the best care and the information provided on the podcast is new to them. So it just validated all the suspicions that I had that our culture in the ICU comes out of good intents with misinformation. Us thinking that sedation sleep and immobility is, is rest and that people can't move during critical illness. Those are all myths that we have throughout our system. And so it's just been exciting to see that people are open, that they're hungry for knowledge and, and then that they're taking this knowledge and they're making changes. So we just had a recent episode um, with a hospital system in the East Coast um, that I did a webinar with. And I just presented kind of the big picture with case studies and pictures and videos. And they got so excited. And then a couple of weeks after, maybe like a month after they had COVID patients up walking on the ventilator. And the nurse talks about Nora. She talks about being able to go through the unit and seeing people dangling at the bedside and being awake on the ventilator. And I just, it's so inspiring that people are that good. Cause I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of doubt. Um, when we present this kind of information at critical care conferences, especially among physicians, and I even toured a hospital and talked to the medical director and told him, what should be happening. And he scoffed and he said, what a lot of these people say, we can't get our nurses to do that. I know the research shows that that's, that improves outcomes, but uh, it's just not going to happen here. And they just shut the door right there. And it makes me crazy because in the end, I'm a nurse, I'm a nurse practitioner, but I'm always a nurse and I know nurses and they want to do the right thing. And to not give them benefit of the doubt, let alone provide them the information help them understand the why and then the how to change the culture and just assume that they won't do it makes me crazy. So moving forward in the podcast, I'm excited to interview more people that are making more changes because I'm hearing reports back of people having these moments of success and catching the vision and they're excited. So I focus on a lot of the negative parts of our culture and our practices, but moving forward, I'm excited to show what can be and the successes. Um, because I believe that any ICU can be an awakened walking ICU. We're all capable of doing the right thing. And I think in the future, we will look back at what we've been doing with horror because it's not what we're going to be doing.
Right. And that seems to be a, a common theme, you know, even outside of healthcare is, is finding areas that, you know, we should have improved, you know, years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, whether that's practices in the ICU or, or what have you, I, I think that's really encouraging to see you getting that message out there and then having those breakthrough moments where you're able to um, connect with clinicians and really show them the difference that it can make for patient care. So uh, I applaud you for the work that you've done with the podcast and, I want to you know, help you promote that. And I, I think it's a, it's a great story to tell. So, um, you know, thank you for being on the Mobility Minute podcast. Um, thank you for your time. And I uh, wish you nothing but the best. Thanks so much, Drew. The Mobility Minute podcast brought to you by Recovery Force Health.